When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A Declaration of the Representatives of the United States of America and General Congress Assembled. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for a people to advance from that subordination in which they have hitherto remained, and to assume among the powers of the earth the equal and independent station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the change. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive right inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Quote, it will probably be asked, why not retain and incorporate the blacks into the state and thus save the expense of supplying by importation of white settlers the vacancies they will leave? Deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites, 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained, new provocations, the real distinction which nature has made, and many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convulsions which will probably never end but in the extermination of the one or the other race. Comparing them by their faculties of memory reason, and imagination, it appears to me that in memory blacks are equal to the whites, in reason much inferior, as I think one could scarcely be found capable of tracing and comprehending the investigations of Euclid, and that in imagination they are dull, tasteless, and anomalous. Never yet could I find that a black had uttered a thought above the level of plain narration, never see even an elementary trait of painting or sculpture. In music, they are more generally gifted than the whites, with accurate ears, fortune, and time. Misery is often the parent of the most affecting touches in poetry. Among the blacks is misery enough, God knows, but not poetry. Love is the peculiar sestrum of the poet. Their love is ardent, but it kindles the senses only, not the imagination. Religion, indeed, has proved a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism. The improvement of the blacks in body and mind, in the first instance of their mixture with the whites, has been observed by everyone and proves that their inferiority is not the effect merely of their condition of life. End quote. The dichotomy in the sentiments of the two opening quotes for this episode are easily apparent and represent a struggle that would carry forward throughout Jefferson's life and that scholars and students of history who have studied him since have struggled with. The same man who articulated a call for equality and liberty in the Declaration of Independence, which has formed the foundation of the United States for generations upon generations of Americans, also felt that these inherent rights and conditions were not applicable to individuals of a different color than he, as outlined in this selection from his notes on the state of Virginia. Jefferson would not be alone in this, and indeed, 
there are still people today, 2019 as of this recording, who hold similar prejudicial views. Both of these sentiments, the high-minded idealism and the base white supremacy, will continue in an uneasy balance as we continue our journey through the presidencies of the United States. Welcome to this episode, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get going, I'd like to thank my husband, Alex, for providing the first intro quote for this episode. As longtime listeners know, I typically turn to fellow podcasters for the intro quote, but as the one from Notes on the State of Virginia was quite racist, I didn't feel right asking anyone else to read it, as the point to be made and the responsibility for bringing it to your attention was mine. Thus, as you could tell, I provided the voice for the second quote. However, as I've always had great support from other history podcasters over the years, I want to make a point of encouraging you to check out their work as well. To learn more about the various podcasters who have helped out with intro quotes in the past, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. While you're there, why not check out the numerous ways that you can subscribe to the podcast, check out the special out-of-narrative video series, and learn the many options available to support the Presidency's podcast. Speaking of, I'd like to send out a special thanks to listener Jeremy, who recently sent various books my way from the wish list linked on the website, which will be of great use in research for this series on Jefferson's presidency. In fact, I've already put one to use in this episode. Thanks to all the members of Team Presidencies who have supported this podcast by listening, leaving ratings and reviews, and sharing information about the podcast with others. I couldn't do this without all of you. Now, without further ado, let's get back to Virginia. When we left Mr. Jefferson last episode, his summary view of the rights of British America had just been published in 1774, and he was quickly making a name for himself as a radical proponent of the rights of Americans. As we discussed last time, this publication was done without his prior knowledge, and it reflected not only his viewpoints, but also the breadth and depth of his learning and how his accumulation of knowledge was shifting from the law into the field of politics and governance. In the summary view, Jefferson addressed his concerns over, quote, parliamentary meddling with the internal affairs of the colonies through the lens of history and used that to make the moral argument that, quote, the God who gives us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy, but cannot disjoin them. His growing renown caused him to be chosen to be part of the Albemarle Committee called for by the First Continental Congress, quote, to observe the conduct of all persons respecting the non-importation agreement, to publish the names of offenders, and thus to cause the enemies of American liberty to be condemned and outlawed. Even the British royal governor in Virginia, Lord Dunmore, admitted that, as 1774 gave way to 1775, the colonial government was breaking down in favor of the county committees. As Jefferson grew more into this public role as a champion of liberty, and as the colonial judicial system ground to a halt, he decided to abandon his law practice. The record of his last case was dated November 9, 1774, and he would hand over all of his unfinished cases to a young lawyer named Edmund Randolph. Yes, for those astute listeners, it is in fact that Edmund Randolph who would later succeed Jefferson as Secretary of State. As discussed in the special episode on Randolph, episode 1.205, Jefferson had already allowed Randolph to take on some of his cases that fall in what Randolph biographer John J. Reardon described as a one-time favor. However, Randolph had already made overtures to those clients to secure their business in the future. Given what we know now, it's possible that Randolph's attempt to court Jefferson's clients may be justified by Jefferson having hinted at plans to leave his practice. 
Or, on the other hand, Randolph's opportunistic move may have inspired Jefferson to go ahead and hand his clients over rather than try to get into a squabble. Either way, Jefferson had at best been an unconventional lawyer for the time, interested more in other intellectual pursuits than legal practice. So it's not likely that it took much convincing once he was assured that the finances could work out to leave his career in the law. His financial situation at that point was much more soluble due to the death of his father-in-law, John Wales, in 1773. As noted last episode, Martha's father was quite well off, and with his death, Jefferson brought into his existing properties over 10,000 acres of land as well as 135 enslaved individuals. Added to his existing property of over 5,000 acres and 52 enslaved individuals, this was a tremendous financial boom. It would not come without a cost, however. First, around the same time of his father-in-law's death, Jefferson's friend Dabney Carr passed away, and Jefferson took in his friend's wife and children, with biographer John Bowles noting that Jefferson, quote, essentially raised the Carr children at Monticello. Beyond this addition to his financial burden, John Wales' estate also came coupled with a substantial debt. Though Jefferson would sell off around half of the land to pay the debt, the British creditors who were owed the debt would reject the payment as it was in depreciated revolutionary currency, and this debt would remain a financial burden on Jefferson through the rest of his life. There were two other additions to his estate from the Wales inheritance to note. First, he obtained the plantation of Poplar Forest, which would become a key retreat farm later in his life. More notable, at least in terms of Jefferson's scholarship for the last 30 years, is that Elizabeth Betty Hemings and her children would join the ranks of those enslaved at Monticello. As the story of the Hemings family is deserving of more focused attention than as a side note in this episode, I'm planning to devote a special episode to it. For now, just know that this is where they were brought into the life of Thomas Jefferson. His domestic affairs providing him some more freedom to pursue a public life, Jefferson traveled to Richmond, Virginia to attend a provincial convention in March 1775 without the royal governor's authorization. It would be at this convention that Patrick Henry would deliver his now-famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, and Jefferson would work with Henry's supporters at the convention to advance Henry's proposals. For his work towards the cause of liberty, Jefferson was elected as a deputy to serve in the Second Continental Congress should Peyton Randolph be unable to attend. As it turned out, because of developments in Virginia and the necessity of Randolph remaining in the state due to his role as Speaker of the House of Burgesses, June 1775 would find Jefferson on the road to Philadelphia with a copy of the Virginia Resolutions, which he himself had helped to draft, rejecting the latest British proposal, which still did not, in the minds of the Burgesses, guarantee the liberty of Virginia's citizens from the tyranny of Parliament. His arrival at the Second Continental Congress would bring Jefferson into conversation and collaboration with leaders from other parts of British North America, including the famous Benjamin Franklin. A delegate from Massachusetts would note Jefferson's arrival by asserting that the Virginian had, quote, a reputation for literature, science, and a happy talent of composition. Writings of his were handed about, remarkable for the peculiar felicity of expression. This same delegate would later recall that, as Jefferson was, quote, so prompt, frank, explicit, and decisive, Jefferson soon seized upon my heart. This delegate was, as you may have guessed, John Adams of Braintree. As noted by Gordon Wood, quote, Wealthier than many of the delegates, Jefferson had spared no expense in traveling to Philadelphia, arriving with four horses. He took up luxurious quarters that were separated from the other delegates. 
Though he was largely silent in the open congressional sessions, the Congress would quickly put Jefferson's writing skills to use, as, two days after his arrival, he was appointed to a committee to draft a declaration for General Washington to have published after he assumed command of the Continental Forces in the Boston area. This would not be Jefferson's last writing assignment in this session of Congress, for, as noted by historian Noble Cunningham, quote, During his first six weeks in Congress, Jefferson had a leading role in drafting two major state papers adopted by Congress, the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms and a response to the same British proposal that the Virginia Resolutions had rejected. As he was growing in prominence in his political involvement, Jefferson would suffer personal loss. Thomas and Martha's second daughter, Jane Randolph, had just been born the year prior, but would pass away while Jefferson was back at Monticello during a break in congressional sessions in the early fall. During another break in the early spring of 1776, Jefferson's mother, Jane Randolph Jefferson, passed away unexpectedly at the age of 57. Whether triggered by the stress of his mother's passing, his concerns about the conflict with Britain, or some other cause, Jefferson would also suffer during this time from, quote, one of his periodic headaches that immobilized him for a month and kept him from returning to the Continental Congress. I mention these headaches now as he would suffer from them on a regular basis from this point until after his presidency. As described by Cunningham, quote, Jefferson later described one such attack as a paradoxum of the most excruciating pain that came on every day at sunrise and never left me till sunset. The spells usually last two or three weeks and occurred about every six to eight years. They came on when he was suffering from extreme tension. He would finally recover enough to travel to Philadelphia and resume his seat for a pivotal session of Congress on May 14, 1776. Jefferson, however, would soon bemoan the fact that he had made the journey, as he learned two weeks after arriving in Philadelphia that the Virginia Convention had resolved to declare independence and that a committee had been formed to draft a state constitution. Jefferson proposed that Virginia's delegates to the Continental Congress be temporarily recalled in order to assist with the new constitution. This was not an unreasonable proposition, as other congressional members, including the entire delegation from Maryland, had been temporarily recalled for the same purpose. But for Virginia's constitution, ultimately George Mason, rather than Jefferson, would be the guiding force on that document. Jefferson, however, did develop his own draft for the state constitution, and some of the ideas from that document would be carried forward into future initiatives on both the state and national level as he did not feel that Mason's draft went far enough in advancing the cause of the revolution. Jefferson's presence in Philadelphia ultimately proved to be the opportunity of a lifetime, as on June 11th, Congress named a committee of five, quote, to draft a formal Declaration of Independence. As you are likely aware, dear listener, and as was mentioned in episode 2.02, the primary work of this committee would ultimately devolve onto Jefferson. The Virginian would work for 17 days on his draft. As he recalled towards the end of his life, he saw his purpose in the draft as being, quote, not to find out new principles or new arguments, never before thought of, not merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take. Neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, yet nor copied from any particular in previous writing, it, i.e. the Declaration, was intended to be an expression of the American mind, and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. 
There's often the impression in the public mind that the Declaration of Independence was the composition of original concepts by Jefferson. But, as Jefferson himself admitted, that wasn't the purpose of it. Jefferson's intent was to pull together all the ideas that had been floating around in Enlightenment circles and publications into a coherent statement of principles. As there are entire books that have been written about the inspiration behind, composition of, and passage of the Declaration, I'm not going to linger too long on the subject. However, I think there are two important points to note. First, as John Meacham discusses in his book, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, the work of drafting the Declaration was not done in a bubble. Rather, Jefferson was in the midst of all the other trials that the Congress was facing. Quote, The politics of the moment were fraught with fears over conspiracies, of loyalists plotting at home, and of Indian attacks on the frontier. Nothing and no one was to be counted on. It was a season of schemes and secrets. This was at a time that Jefferson was drafting a document intended to be a rallying cry to bring the new states together in pursuit of a common cause. The second point to note is Jefferson's reaction to his draft coming under the scrutiny of the Congress. It was introduced on June 28th, and the debate began on July 1st. Again, from Meacham, quote, Jefferson hated being edited by such a large group. He fairly writhed as he sat in the Pennsylvania State House, listening to member after member offer his thoughts, wanting to change this and that. His fellow committee members, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, would work to assure and comfort Jefferson. But as we continue our journey with him in this narrative, the sensitivity to criticism is, in my humble opinion, a point to keep in mind. Following the passage and signing of the Declaration, Jefferson's anxiety at getting back to Virginia was not just in having an opportunity to get involved in affairs setting up the new independent state. His wife Martha's health was not well, and, as he wrote on July 29th to Richard Henry Lee, who was set to replace him in Philadelphia, quote, For God's sake, for your country's sake, and for my sake, come. I receive by every post such accounts of the state of Mrs. Jefferson's health that it will be impossible for me to disappoint her expectation of seeing me at the time I have promised, which supposed my leaving this place on the 11th of next month. Ultimately, Jefferson would be delayed until September 3rd in his departure from Philadelphia, but in that time, Martha's health would improve. Arriving at Monticello a few days later, it would be less than three weeks before he was on the road again, this time bound for Williamsburg to attend the opening of the Virginia General Assembly as a newly elected member of the State House of Delegates. Martha would actually accompany him on this trip, and they would stay at the home of his mentor, George Wythe. Before they had settled in, however, word came from Philadelphia that he was being named as a commissioner to France to join Benjamin Franklin and Silas Dean in an effort to secure a treaty with that nation. After carefully considering the matter, and in light of his wife's recent ill health, Jefferson would decline this offer and instead remain in his elected post in Williamsburg. Jefferson proved successful in numerous endeavors during this tenure in the state legislature. He would play a leading role in the committee appointed to revise the laws of the state in light of its newfound independence from Great Britain. He also pushed for a reform that would end the practice of primogeniture. In essence, British inheritance law meant that if a person died without a will, their estate would automatically pass to their eldest son rather than being divided amongst all of the individual's descendants. Jefferson and others at the time saw this as perpetuating an aristocracy. Though it would take a decade, Ultimately, Virginia would end the practice. Jefferson also drafted resolutions to establish freedom of religion in the state. 
As with his work on primogenitor reform, it would take a while, but his statute for religious freedom would ultimately be adopted in 1786. Another key reform that he pushed during this time was a draft, quote, bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge. Jefferson's plan was for counties in the state to be divided up into smaller units, each of which would have, quote, a school so conveniently located that all free boys and girls might attend daily. All children would be given three years of schooling free, and pupils could continue their studies if they or their families could pay for it. The educational model called for the study of, quote, reading, writing, and common arithmetic, as well as for students to become acquainted with Greek, Roman, English, and American history through the books used for reading. There would be more advanced studies and a scholarship provided to one boy selected out of 10 elementary schools who was, quote, of the best and most promising genius and disposition, but whose parents could not afford to continue his education. Students at the higher level, quote, will be taught Latin, Greek, English grammar, geography, and advanced arithmetic. Continuation in studies for the less affluent students there on scholarship would be dependent on their scores as a third of the students would be cut from the training after a year and ultimately only one who was deemed, quote, the best in genius and disposition would be fully funded to continue his education for another four years. Despite his efforts on its behalf, Jefferson's education plan would not be passed. A system of public education was finally established in Virginia in 1796, but for whatever inspiration Jefferson's proposal may have provided, the plan that went into place was much different. I mention this proposal to highlight two key aspects of Jefferson. First, Jefferson valued education, and he recognized the importance of educating a greater portion of the population. This differentiated him greatly with Federalists, who generally aimed to retain a hierarchy through various means, including education. Jefferson, on the other hand, recognized that there were talented individuals from less affluent families who could thrive and would be of great benefit to society if given a chance. While his plan may not seem progressive in terms of 21st century standards, this was highly radical at a time where most could hardly conceive of such a thing as education funded by the public. Second, his education proposal reflects Jefferson's tendency to pie-in-the-sky ideas. From what I've read, not only did he really not think through the details of his proposal, specifically in how such an extensive system would be funded, but he also didn't really know how to sell it. Indeed, his statute for religious freedom and primogeniture reforms may have remained just good ideas that never saw the light of day, if not for an individual who he met on the Committee on Religion in the Virginia House of Delegates. Dear friends, yes, we are at the point where Jefferson meets James Madison of Orange County, Virginia. At the time they met in October 1776, Madison was 25 while Jefferson was 33. We'll be learning much more about Madison as we go on, but their long-standing partnership throughout the rest of their careers would ultimately prove to be near unparalleled in American political history. Madison would prove to be Jefferson's most crucial advisor and would work in various points of his life to secure legislative and political victories for the man from Monticello. For now, though, let us turn back to Jefferson. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
One other point in his legislative career bears examination before we move on. At a time where great reform was being pushed in the Virginia legislature with Jefferson as one of the standard bearers of the changes, it is noticeable that there was not a significant push by Jefferson or other leaders to emancipate those enslaved in the state. Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone explains that, quote, he favored the discontinuance of the slave trade before the revolution and definitely proposed it as early as 1776 and also, quote, strongly favored emancipation. The only action to be taken on these, however, was on the latter, with a successful ban on the slave trade passing in 1778, as proposed by another delegate, while Jefferson was not present. Jefferson would write in the notes on the state of Virginia that there was a draft amendment waiting to be put forward that detailed a plan for gradual emancipation, which provided for the recolonization of freed blacks. However, at that point, Jefferson was no longer in the state legislature, and, as Noble Cunningham notes, Quote, there is no record that the amendment for emancipation was ever introduced, and Jefferson in his autobiography said that, quote, it was found that the public mind would not yet bear the proposition. Jefferson would include in notes a draft state constitution calling for freedom for all people born after December 31st, 1800, but again from Cunningham, quote, prepared in 1783 in expectation of a constitutional convention that was never called. That proposition also received no serious consideration. Jefferson's inaction on the issue of slavery and the racist views that he put forward in notes on the state of Virginia, as expressed in the opening quote, continued to frustrate students of Jefferson's life as being uncharacteristic of someone dubbed by many a quote-unquote renaissance man who was ahead of his time in so many other ways. However, as we noted last episode, Jefferson admitted the negative influence of slaveholding but only with respect to white parents exposing their children to the practice. Jefferson was a byproduct of his upbringing, and even his arguments against slavery are based more on its negative impact on future generations of white people rather than the inhumanity and barbarism perpetrated on people of color. Even for this man seen by many as a visionary, on some subjects, his vision only went so far. On June 1, 1779, the Virginia State Legislature would elect Thomas Jefferson as the second governor of the state to succeed the illustrious Patrick Henry. There was little to celebrate in this victory, however. The end of Governor Henry's term had seen a British fleet threaten the Hampton Roads area, and Virginia's defenses had proven woefully inadequate. Thankfully for the state, the British forces had only been ordered on a quick attack and were soon recalled to New York despite the desire of many of the officers in the fleet wishing to continue the advance. Had they done so, history might have gone quite differently. As it stood, the final days of Henry's term proved an ignoble end to his tenure in office, and his successor would have much to contemplate as he took up the post. As noted by Michael Cranish, quote, Jefferson immediately received dire warnings from his friends about the collapsing state of affairs in Virginia. The economy was in shambles, and a number of counties failed to submit taxes. The state was woefully short of weaponry. Pirates were running up the bays, rivers, and inlets, plundering at will, while British ships sailed up and down the coast. Further, because of the nature of the governorship as it was crafted in the state constitution, Jefferson was limited in his direct powers to address any of the issues. The legislature had virtually all control over governmental affairs, and Jefferson didn't even have a veto to use against them. 
For what little authority the executive had, he had to work with an eight-member council of state and often found himself unable to do anything as a quorum of four members of the council were required to be present in order to reach decisions. However, his relationship with his council would prove to be a harmonious one, an interaction which would prove to be prescient for his collaboration with his cabinet over 20 years later. One member of the council in particular would grow close to Jefferson during this time and would eventually be a member of that cabinet in two decades. Though Madison would leave the council only a few months into Jefferson's first term, as Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum wrote, quote, By the time Madison left Williamsburg in December 1779, the two men had formed the bonds of respect, devotion, and affection, which would make their collaboration both a joy to themselves and a boon to the new nation. For two years, Jefferson would work closely with the members of the council, sometimes meeting with them daily, in order to administer a state on a war footing, but which proved to be sorely lacking some of the necessities of prosecuting the conflict. As Noble Cunningham noted in his biography of Jefferson, quote, Virginia, like most of the other states, had not developed the supply and distribution system needed to support the war effort. The result was that Jefferson, as governor, was directly involved in such details as calculating the number of uniforms that could be cut from 1,495 yards of cloth. As we'll see, though Jefferson was great at developing ideas, he was not so good at the details. Indeed, in this particular example, he would overestimate the number of uniforms that could be cut from the cloth by 30. Though re-elected to a second one-year term, there would continue to be no reason for celebration as, quote, the financial situation of the state was desperate, inflation was rampant, and the state currency was becoming worthless. The military situation in the South deteriorated rapidly as British troops moved northward after the fall of Charleston. Though he was desperately seeking support, Jefferson found that the only communications he was receiving was from others, be it the Continental Congress, the Continental Army, or citizens of the state seeking relief from him. In essence, Jefferson's two years as governor were in utter misery. Then came January 1781. The traitor of West Point, Benedict Arnold, had sought and finally gotten approval at the end of 1780 to lead an invasion force of 1,600 to invade Virginia. Forces of the Virginia Navy first spotted the 27 British ships passing through the Capes of Virginia on the evening of December 30th, and Jefferson would receive his first news of the ships on New Year's Day. At first, it wasn't clear if these vessels were in fact British or if they were a French fleet that was expected. Before long, though, the British forces landed and began their assault. Jefferson issued orders to call up the militia to meet the invasion, which was headed straight for the new state capital of Richmond. After moving government records, military stores, and his family out of the city, Jefferson and the state government would abandon the city, and Arnold and his troops would face no opposition as they entered Richmond and set fire to government buildings and private residences after securing remaining military supplies. After 24 hours, the British would leave, and in less than a day, Jefferson would return to Richmond to assess the losses. Unlike the British force during Henry's tenure as governor, Arnold's troops were there for the long haul. For the rest of Jefferson's term of office, the British force would be roaming around southeast Virginia. Due to the continued threat to Richmond, and after the General Assembly proved unable to make a quorum in that city, the state government moved to Charlottesville in mid-May. By this point, Virginia was becoming a key battleground in the overall revolutionary conflict, with the Marquis de Lafayette moving a detachment of 900 Continental troops into the arena while the British were joined by General Cornwallis and his forces. 
Jefferson had already announced that he would not seek a third term of office when his current term ended on June 2nd. However, he had not reckoned on the British turning their sights on Charlottesville. On the last day of May, Cornwallis ordered his subordinate, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton, to lead 250 cavalry forces on a raid of Charlottesville with capturing Jefferson and members of the Virginia State Assembly as primary goals. When they arrived on June 4th, they would find that Jefferson and the legislators were nowhere to be found. Thankfully, a militia captain from 40 miles away had spotted the British troops and rode through the night to warn the state government. Jefferson would flee for his estate Poplar Forest, while the state legislature would assemble at Staunton to choose the new governor. The warning had come just in the nick of time, as five minutes after Jefferson departed Monticello, the first British troops arrived. Among those meeting the British would be the enslaved butler Martin Hemings, who was threatened by the troops at gunpoint to reveal Jefferson's location. For 18 hours, the British would remain at Jefferson's estate before leaving, but they would not do any damage. As noted by Michael Cranish, this was likely in recognition of Jefferson's kind treatment of British prisoners who had been until recently kept in Charlottesville. As soon as the new governor was chosen, a motion was filed in the House of Delegates to launch an inquiry into Jefferson's conduct in his last term as governor. The resolution would be supported by Patrick Henry and passed on the same day, June 12th. As the inquiry would not begin until the next session of the General Assembly set to begin in December, Jefferson worked to get himself elected to the House of Delegates and thus was present in that body on December 12, 1781, when the inquiry began. In the six months since the resolution was passed, much had changed. The Continental Army had achieved its victory over the British at Yorktown, and some of the tensions and fears that Virginia had experienced during Jefferson's tenure of office had subsided. Indeed, the state delegate who had offered up the inquiry resolution didn't even show up on the date it was set to begin. Instead, Jefferson himself rose and made a motion to begin the inquiry, and as he read the charges against him, he answered each one in turn. By the time he was done, the House of Delegates passed a unanimous resolution commending him for his conduct in his public service and offering its thanks. Jefferson, however, would hold on to this slight and comment on it later in his life. And likewise, his political enemies would turn to this point in his career time and time again to attack his record as he rose in national prominence. As trying as it may have been, his tenure as governor would ultimately prove to not be the lowest point in his life, as we'll see in a minute. Before he left office as governor, Jefferson began to assemble his thoughts on what would come to be one of his most famous compositions. The Marquis de Barbet-Montbois, who was serving as the secretary of the French legation in Philadelphia, had begun asking around for more information about the various states of the United States, and one of Virginia's representatives had sent the inquiry on to the governor for a reply. Though he began some preliminary work in late 1780, it wouldn't be until mid-1781 after the end of his governorship and he was confined to his home for a while after a fall from a horse that Jefferson began to tackle the work in earnest. After poring over information that he had gathered over the years on Virginia, Jefferson used his tenure in the House of Delegates not just to defend his honor, but also to gather some final bits of data and he concluded his work with the manuscript being sent to Marbois in late March or early April 1782. As noted by Gordon Reed and Onuf, Jefferson would craft notes not only as, quote, a compendium of data on Virginia's natural resources, population, institutions, and history, 
but also, quote, as an occasion to reflect systematically on his new state's national character and as an ambitious blueprint for reform that would lay a solid foundation for a new Republican superstructure for his state. Though poised to face new challenges as the Revolutionary War was wrapping up following the Battle of Yorktown, Jefferson would instead face tragedy at home in 1782. In the decade of their marriage, his wife Martha had given birth to five children, only two of which had survived past infancy when she became pregnant once more. On May 8th, she gave birth to Lucy Elizabeth, but though there was joy in the birth, it quickly turned to concern as Martha struggled to recover. As noted by their oldest daughter, Patsy, years later, quote, For the four months that she lingered, he, i.e. Jefferson, was never out of calling. When not at her bedside, he was writing in a small room, which opened immediately at the head of her bed. Ultimately, her remaining strength faltered, and on September 6th, Martha Jefferson passed away. The loss of his wife would decimate the man from Albemarle. He lingered in a state of depression at Monticello through a good portion of the fall, writing in late November that it had been a month since he had begun, quote, a little emerging from that stupor of mind which had rendered me as dead to the world as she was whose loss occasioned it. As it turned out, during that time, his friend Madison, serving as one of Virginia's representatives to the Confederation Congress, had been working on Jefferson's behalf to get him named to a team of American peace negotiators in Paris. When the Congress confirmed his nomination, word was sent to Jefferson, and he accepted quickly. As noted by Malone, quote, His cherished plans to seek satisfaction and happiness in philosophical activities in the bosom of his family had been shattered. He welcomed for once the chance to get away from Monticello, where he believed he could never be so happy again. And although Richmond and the Assembly did not allure him, the vaunted scene of Europe did. By late December, he had joined Madison in Philadelphia, where they would spend three months together while Jefferson attempted to secure passage to France. He would also, during this time, get more involved in the American Philosophical Society, a group based in Philadelphia that he had been a member of since 1780. In mid-February, he learned that Congress had ordered him not to set sail, quote, until he had received further instructions, and, after more back and forth, he was released from the appointment on April 1st. Jefferson would use his time that year to draft a new state constitution, which he provided to Madison to use in an upcoming constitutional convention, and to catalog the books in his library before being elected to join Madison in the Confederation Congress. Finally, though, on May 7, 1783, third time proved to be the charm. He was elected once more to be a diplomatic representative for the U.S. and France, and on July 5th, he set sail with his daughter Patsy and the enslaved James Hemings accompanying him. Dear listener, this is one of those instances that I have to warn you that I'm about to go very quickly through a part of Jefferson's life that, though it is important to understanding the man, is not quite as crucial, in my humble opinion, to understanding his presidency. As stated at the beginning of last episode, these pre-presidency episodes are not intended to be an all-inclusive biography of Jefferson. If you're interested in learning more, there's a wealth of scholarship out there on this period in Jefferson's life, including but not limited to Dumas Malone's Jefferson and the Rights of Man and The Paris Years of Thomas Jefferson by William Howard Adams. For our part, though, I think we only need to go high level, hit on a few key points, then move forward. Sound good? Then here we go. Jefferson would join Benjamin Franklin and John Adams in Paris, and his interactions with both, along with the other members of the Adams clan during this time, would prove pivotal for all involved. 
In Jefferson, Franklin found a worthy successor as he connected the Virginian with, quote, the world of letters and philosophy in the French capital. In the Adamses, the widower Jefferson found worthy companions. As noted by David McCullough, the Americans being thrown together in a foreign nation allowed for, quote, the flourishing of a friendship that under normal circumstances at home would most likely never have happened. In addition to the previously discussed relationship with John and Abigail, I should note that this time would prove to be crucial in Jefferson developing a friendship with their son, John Quincy. Again, for McCullough, quote, The interest Jefferson showed in John Quincy pleased the young man exceedingly and was not lost on his parents. Yes, dear listener, we'll be hearing much more about this young man in future episodes. Jefferson's tenure in Paris would provide him an opportunity to expand his scope beyond the domestic and national scene, as well as to reflect from afar on the state of things back in the United States. The weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation were readily apparent to many Americans, Jefferson included, and he advocated reform of those in order to strengthen the Union as well as provide a greater opportunity for diplomats to secure peace with other nations. Indeed, he and his fellow American diplomats in Europe would grow frustrated at their lack of progress in negotiations due to the constraints under which they were operating. However, as noted by Cunningham, the primary documents remaining from his tenure in France, quote, show that Jefferson was assiduous and characteristically systematic in preparing himself for negotiations, that he became highly versed in commercial matters, and that he sought to use the negotiations to accomplish purposes broader than those of commerce. While Adams continued to hone his ideas on naval strength as the key to strengthening the United States' position in developing commercial relations internationally, Jefferson instead centered his attention on the possibility of commerce and the withdrawal of it as being the key levers to the U.S. asserting itself on an international level. As described by historian Merrill Peterson, Jefferson's ideology can be best summarized as follows, quote, As an agricultural commercial nation, its internal trade undeveloped, its industrial base exceedingly narrow, the United States must cherish its navigation, penetrate foreign markets, and seek its economic well-being in the transatlantic trading area. Economic policy is inseparable from foreign policy. Trade is a weapon of diplomacy, the only potent weapon in the American armory to be employed in pursuit of the national interest. Keep this in the back of your mind, dear listener, as we'll be coming back to this point on down the line. The one other point to note about this time in Jefferson's life is that, in 1787, he sent for his other surviving daughter, Mary, who was also known as Polly and later Maria, to join him in Paris. Jefferson asked that an older enslaved woman named Isabel travel with his nine-year-old daughter across the Atlantic. However, Isabel was just about to give birth. So the aunt and uncle that had been caring for Polly while her father was away opted to send her in the care of a 14-year-old enslaved girl named Sally Hemings. Abigail Adams, who met Sally and Polly upon their arrival in London, was shocked that Jefferson's daughter had been entrusted to the care of someone so young. But as noted by both Annette Gordon-Reed in her book on Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and by Cynthia Kerner in her biography of Jefferson's daughter Martha, Sally had served the family in the house at Monticello since she was very young and had been left with Polly when her older sister Patsy had traveled to France with her father. There is no reason to believe that Polly's aunt and uncle would have sent her in the care of Sally if they didn't feel confident that Sally was capable of looking out for the young Jefferson girl. Indeed, though there's no evidence that this played into the decision to send Sally, 
It is quite possible that they felt Sally may have even more of a vested interest in Polly's safety, since she was, in fact, Polly's half aunt. Again, there is much more to share about the Hemings family that deserves to be the focus of a special episode than an aside. But for now, just know that Sally Hemings was the daughter of the enslaved Betty Hemings and her former master, Jefferson's father in law, John Wales. Why do I bring up Sally here, you ask? Well, Sally's son Madison would later write that Jefferson would begin a sexual relationship with Sally in France. The nature of their relationship has been the subject of many scholarly works, but I focus on it here because Sally and her children will come up in the public discourse during Jefferson's presidency. Upon her return to Virginia from France, Sally was reported to be pregnant and would soon give birth to a son who was supposedly named Tom. I say this with uncertainty, as there has thus far been no record beyond Madison Hemings' later account found that mentions this pregnancy. It is possible that the child passed away in infancy, or that Madison may have been mistaken in his understanding of the timeline, as this was before his birth and was secondhand knowledge. We do know that, after Jefferson left the State Department, Sally Hemings had a child named Harriet on October 5, 1795. She had six children total between 1795 and 1808 that we know of from the existing records, and each was born at a time where Jefferson was present at Monticello around the time that they would have been conceived. Jefferson's grandson by his daughter Martha would later admit that one of Sally's sons, quote, looked so much like Jefferson that at some distance or in the dusk, the slave, dressed in the same way, might have been mistaken for Mr. Jefferson. There is much more to say about the Hemings family at a later date, but for now, just have in your mind that Sally Hemings and her children are going to be present in the Jefferson household at Monticello from this point forward. His career after his return from Paris has already been discussed at some length in the Washington and Adams series, so I'll refer you to those for more detailed information on that part of Jefferson's career. He served as Secretary of State from March 22, 1790 until December 31, 1793, then retired back to Monticello before he was elected as Vice President and sworn in on March 4, 1797. He would grow increasingly concerned about the level of pomp and circumstance exhibited by the officers of the federal government and Federalist leaders, fearing that their aim was to create, quote, a virtual aristocracy to intimidate ordinary Americans just as real aristocrats awed the impoverished masses of Europe. As the nation's leaders increasingly divided among party lines and the populace began to grow involved in the factional conflict, Jefferson grew as the 1790s went on into a leader and a rallying point for the opposition to the Federalist administrations of Washington and Adams. Though he would cultivate an image of being above the partisan fray and would decry party animosities, as we've seen in numerous instances, Jefferson was very much involved through organizing partisan presses such as Philip Furneaux's National Gazette, drafting the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798 and 1799, and coordinating Democratic-Republican efforts through correspondence with like-minded individuals across the nation. The only other item from his pre-presidency that was not discussed in the previous series, but that plays a role in his presidency, is his work on his home. After Jefferson left his position at the State Department, he was finally able to give more attention to his long-delayed plans for Monticello, which had been inspired by architecture he had seen in Europe. Though the designs may be European, some of the key building materials used to construct the house would come from Albemarle County, 
with the bricks made out of local clay and the nails being crafted at a nail factory run under his direction by individuals he enslaved. Though long delayed, in February 1796, work would begin to demolish existing structures, starting with the East Portico, in order to reconstruct, based on Jefferson's latest plans. Though the construction work was slow going, and guests to the house would find the structure to have, quote, a gaping wound instead of a stately entrance. One thing that was quick in coming was the bills. Jefferson had to negotiate a loan with a Dutch banking firm and manage his other debts by mortgaging 150 enslaved individuals. As noted by Malone, quote, without this, he probably would have been unable to pursue his ambitious plans. The work would continue during his tenure as vice president, but as he prepared to move into the president's house in Washington, though the dome was in place on the house, there was still much work to do on both the exterior and interior. Meanwhile, his finances were in a continued weakened state. He was still working to pay off the debt of his late father-in-law and, in March 1800, wrote of his hope that, with a few final payments, he could finally, quote, close this last remnant of Mr. Wales's debts, which I have been working off ever since the peace. However, in addition to construction expenses, Jefferson would see a decline in his income due to losses in the tobacco market and an additional financial burden in helping his son-in-law to pay a mortgage in 1800. As he prepared to take on the burdens of the chief executive, ever present on him would be the burden of his personal finances. As we shall see when we begin our journey through Jefferson's tenure of office, starting with the next episode, which I would like to call The Revolution of 1800. Thanks again to Alex for his assistance with the intro quote for this episode. For sources used for this episode, or if you need to catch up on the Washington or Adams series, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you have any questions or comments, there are numerous ways to reach me. I'm available via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached through social media. On Facebook, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. I'm also on Twitter at presidencies89 and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.